so glad for each and every one of you that are here today. I turn your attention to the book of Judges, chapter 16, and we begin reading in verse 27. Judges, chapter 16, and verse 27. Now the house was full of men and women, and all the lords of the Philistines were there. And there were upon the roof about 3,000 men and women that beheld while Samson made sport. Samson called unto the Lord and said, O Lord God, remember me, I pray thee, and strengthen me, I pray thee, only this once, O God, that I may be at once avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. Samson took hold of the two middle pillars upon which the house stood and on which it was borne up, of the one with his right hand and the other with his left. Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he bowed himself with all his might. And the house fell upon the Lord's and upon all the people that were therein. So the dead which he slew at his death were more than they which he slew in his life. I'd like to speak this morning on this subject, the God of the ninth inning. The God of the ninth inning. Under the reading of the Word of God, everybody said in Jesus' name. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. A friend of mine asked me this morning what I was preaching about, and I told him that my title was The God of the Ninth Inning, and he said, let's hope it doesn't go into extra innings. <laughs> As a young boy growing up in the Melbourne and Palm Bay area, I became very interested in the Los Angeles Dodgers baseball team that conducted their spring training each year in Vero Beach, just south of here, in a place called Dodger Town. I would go to the games with my father and sometimes my grandfather and enjoyed it immensely. This was in the 70s, and you could interact with the players, be on the field for autographs. Most people that came to the games, they lived around here. They would sit on the grass and watch the major league players. It was not anything near the commercial event that it is now, across the state of Florida, what is commonly referred to as the Grapefruit League. Tickets back then were maybe $5, if anything at all. Nowadays, it's hard to even get a ticket. I would negotiate with my parents for extra days to go to the Dodger games. My father came up with a plan that for each A that I got on my report card, I could take a day off of school and go to a Dodger game. So I would save up my A's, and I spent a considerable amount of time in the month of March in Dodgertown. In fact, I had more A's than they had home games. So I would take days off and then just, just go down there when they were practicing, and I would try to make myself useful and carry their equipment and whatever I could do and became friends with several of the players. I'd play catch with Ron Say, their famous third baseman, Bob Welch who at the time was an up-and-coming pitcher, Steve Garvey, who was 
pretty well known at that time. He would let me drive his golf cart when he played golf on his days off. And now that I think back about it and consider the liability of such a thing, I'm surprised that they let a little kid drive a golf cart around with a, a major league million-dollar investment there. But it was such as the 70s would allow for us to have that kind of uh, interaction with these major league players. Some of the players introduced me to their manager, a man by the name of Tommy Lasorda. And uh, he took a liking to me, and he was Italian, and he liked that I was half Italian. The players uh, nicknamed him Tommy Lasagna. And he uh, made me the unofficial bat boy of the Los Angeles Dodgers during spring training. And I say unofficial because I never did get a uniform though I complained about this several times, but it fell on deaf ears. Just having that close proximity to the world-famous Los Angeles Dodgers as a young boy was reward enough, and I became a lifelong fan. I followed them throughout the years of my life. I followed them in their many battles with the New York Yankees. I was always very connected to their their World Series matchups and it was no surprise that when they began to make their playoff run in 1988 that I was there very focused on every one of their games. I had moved back here and I was working with my father in this church and it was very unlikely that the Los Angeles Dodgers would even win their division in 1988, um, much less make a run to the World Series. Uh, they, they were not considered to be a very strong contender. The year before, they had had a dismal season, but they had picked up a player, a free agent from the Detroit Tigers by the name of Kirk Gibson. And he was quite a player. He was a gritty and determined clutch type of hitter. And uh, he was uh, sort of a spark plug for the 1988 Los Angeles Dodgers. They also had a pitcher by the name of uh, Earl Hershiser. He he uh, was known to sing gospel hymns while he was on the mound and to even pray. And all of it seemed to work as he was having an amazing year. They really surprised everyone when they, they won the National League West Division and they were considered underdogs throughout the 1988 postseason. First to the New York Mets in the National League Championship Series and then to the, the Oakland Athletics in the World Series. They continued to surprise everyone to the point where it was now the first game of the World Series. They started there in Los Angeles in Dodger Stadium. The date was October the 15th, 1988. World Series had begun. Two California teams playing each other. The Oakland A's and the Los Angeles Dodgers. Kurt Gibson, that star player for the Los Angeles Dodgers, was not in the lineup. He was not expected to play the entire series due to injuries in both of his legs that he had sustained in the National League Championship Series with the New York Mets just a few days before. It appeared that the Dodgers were no match for the powerful Oakland A's team, a team that had hitters like Jose Canseco and Mark McGuire. They were a powerful team. And the Dodger fans, like myself, we just prayed that they could at least win one game. That they wouldn't get swept by their opponent. 
It was now the bottom of the ninth. The Dodgers had a man on first, but they were down by one run, two outs. Dennis Eckersley was the best relief pitcher in all of Major League Baseball at that time. He had only given up five home runs the entire season. He was on the mound now to save this victory for the Oakland A's. And he was hard to hit. He was a pitcher that had several pitches, had command of them all. And the league had recognized him as the best relief pitcher. Pitcher that came in and only pitched for a few innings but was very effective. Well, now they were down to one more at bat. They were down by one run, and Dennis Eskerly was on the mound. The Dodgers needed a miracle. Kurt Gibson, who could barely walk, had been in the clubhouse all game, watching on television. He wasn't even in the dugout. He had been watching on television the clubhouse while undergoing physical injury, physical therapy on all of his injuries. And to everyone's surprise, Tommy Lasorda, the Dodgers manager inserted Gibson in the lineup as a pinch hitter. The Dodgers were desperate, and they were grasping for straws. Kurt stumbled out to the batter's box. I remember thinking, what in the world are they doing? Kurt was a great player, but he was severely injured. I couldn't hardly watch. I turned my head. I couldn't believe how the mighty Dodgers had been reduced to the most humiliating moment in front of the whole world. Oral Hershiser, that Dodger pitcher known for his singing and praying, was there in the dugout. I could see him praying. He was praying for a miracle. Kurt Gibson with a blown-out knee in one leg and a torn hamstring in the other leg hobbled out to the batter's box. He braced himself barely able to even stand up. It was hard to watch. He fought off a couple of pitches and then swung clumsily and dribbled another foul ball down the first baseline. It seemed to confirm that his wobbly legs that he was trying to stand on would not be able to allow him to swing with any authority. He took a couple of outside balls and then fouled off another pitch which brought the count to two and two. It appeared to me that we were watching a slow death. On the seventh pitch, Davis, who was on first base, decided it was time for him to steal second. Lasorda explained later that it was prearranged that if Gibson got to two strikes, he would send Davis to second and hope that Davis could somehow make it home if, if Gibson could somehow muscle the ball into the outfield and at least score the tying run. The count went to three and two. Gibson stepped out of the batter's box to consider a scouting report that he had heard on Eckersley that if the count goes to three and two on a left-handed batter, of which Gibson was, Eckersley would throw a backdoor slider, a pitch that's hard to hit even when you know it's coming. Gibson determined that that would be the pitch that Eckersley would throw him next. He stepped back in the batter's box, prepared himself for the backdoor slider, and indeed, here it came. Swinging almost entirely with his upper body, Gibson then hit that back door slider with all of his might that he could muster, literally falling over as he swung. But somehow that pitch went over 
the right field fence, a walk-off home run. He limped around the bases, pumped his fists as his teammates stormed the field. I jumped off the bed, nearly pulled a muscle in my back. I couldn't believe it. The announcers couldn't believe it. Nobody could. It was pandemonium. Vin Scully, the great announcer for the Dodgers, did not say anything for over a minute as he let the pictures tell the story. Finally, he said, in a year that has been so improbable, the impossible has happened. And it didn't matter if the Dodgers ever won another game in that World Series. For me, that was enough. They had pulled off a miracle. But the Dodgers did. Based on that miracle finish, the Dodgers went on to defeat the Oakland A's in the World Series four games to one. Gibson did not have another plate appearance for the rest of that World Series. He would never swing the bat again for that particular series. But for all of his accomplishments as a baseball player, he is remembered more than anything else for that one swing. That one impossible swing. He's remembered more for that than for anything else in his career. Ladies and gentlemen, it is important how we start out in this life. And the accumulation of time and experience is not without consequence. But all of it pales in comparison to how we finish this race called life. Samson had been a great warrior. He had been the hero of the Jewish people. And he had been feared by their enemies. But now he was reduced to a blind, halting, stumbling old man that had to be led by a boy on a makeshift leash. The Philistines had plucked out his eyes with hot iron fire pokers. They had turned him into a beast of burden doing the work of two oxen on the backside of the palace grounds. He was more than just a prisoner. He was more than just a prisoner of war. He was a symbol of the old proverb, the mighty are fallen. They may have sold tickets to see this one great warrior at a time earlier in his life, now reduced to something that is almost inhumane. He turned the grist wheel and he grinded the meal like an ox. Perhaps similar to how people in Las Vegas will pay a few bucks to see Mike Tyson, the once great heavyweight fighter, reduced to just a shadow of what he once was. They'll pay a few bucks to watch him stand in a little ring and throw punches now like a circus act. This is the way it was for this man, Samson. The Philistines were so drunk and so full of decadence and debauchery that someone got the idea that they should bring Samson up and have him stumble around and see if they can make fun of him some more. So they sent a lad to fetch him. He was not a threat anymore. There was a time when the entire nation, the Philistine army, feared just the mention of the name of Samson. But those days were long gone. They had lost their fear of him a long time ago. But perhaps more important to this story, they had lost the fear of his God long ago also. That, my friend, was a mistake. 
God will allow man to carry on for eight innings, sometimes less. But make no mistake, He is the God of the ninth inning. And He will always have the final say. In Esther chapter 6, on the night before, the children of Israel will be destroyed because of a new law that would go into effect in media Persia that would basically exterminate the Jews as a human race. God will not allow the king of media Persia to sleep. He asked for the scrolls to be read because the reading of all those past events of that kingdom would put anybody to sleep. Like the reading of the minutes of the last 10 legislative sessions. Anybody's going to fall asleep. And so the king calls for them to be read in the middle of the night because he can't sleep. He doesn't realize it's God that won't allow him to sleep. The king begins to hear about all the things that have happened in the kingdom. And they begin to read about a Jew by the name of Mordecai who had heard about a plot to assassinate the king of this great powerful nation at the time. And he had told the necessary people about it and they had alarmed the security forces about it and they were able to stop the plot. And as the scrolls are being read to the king of Media Persia, they tell about this story of Mordecai and the king sits up in his bed and says, what did we do to reward him? They say, well, king, we can't find anything in the record where we honored him or rewarded him for alerting us to this assassination plot. And he says, somebody write this down. Tomorrow, we're going to put him on one of my horses. And tomorrow, we're going to put a royal robe on him. And tomorrow, we're going to march him down through the streets and have a town crier. They're going to declare, this is what happens to the man that brings honor to the king, that saves the kingdom. This is how we honor those that will preserve the kingdom. And he said, all right, who should we have lead him? And they said, let's put Haman in charge of that. But little did the king know that Haman was so upset. He was the chief of staff for the king and he was so upset because Mordecai, being a Jew, would not bow down to him as he would go out of the streets and to make his way to his home from the palace. Haman was a little guy, but he had a big ego and he thought everybody should bow down to him. Well, Mordecai wasn't interested in bowing down to him. And Haman was so upset about it, he complained to his wife. His wife told him what he ought to do. You ought to go up there and build gallows and then tell the king that he won't bow down. And then you can hang him on it. And so that very night, the gallows had been finished. He was shining it up. He was preparing for Mordecai to be swinging from those gallows the next day. But instead of him watching Mordecai swing from the gallows, his life taken from him, Instead, Haman is leading the horse through the city the next day saying, this is what happens to the man that honors the kingdom and saves the king's life. And it's the very guy that he thought he was going to take out. Isn't it awesome how God can turn the tables? The night before, in the midnight hour, Maybe some of you today can tell stories about how God came through for you. You didn't think it was going to happen. But in the bottom of the ninth, in the midnight hour, when it didn't look like there was any way out, God made a way where there seemed to be no way. Peter is scheduled to be executed in the book of Acts at the hand of King Herod and he had recently executed John the Baptist. But in the night... The night before, God sent one of his jailbreak angels 
Aren't you thankful that God has a whole army of jailbreak angels? Have you ever had one of them show up for you? You said, there's no way I'm going to get out of this mess. But somehow, you got out of that mess. You couldn't see how it happened. You still today don't know how it happened. I'll tell you how it happened. God made a way where there seemed to be no way. Oh, hallelujah. God spares Paul in Acts chapter 21 as a mob is stoning him. And the Bible says, would have killed him. And God stepped in and the Roman army came and spared the life of Paul. You know why? Because God can use anybody from anywhere to bring victory in the ninth, in the ninth inning. Maybe you can remember that victory you got. It looked like everything was against you. You were not going to make it. But in the last minute, God came through and you won the victory, a mighty victory. Oh, you still had problems after that. You still faced the realities of a determined foe. But you could not deny that God had touched you. You remembered when you were first touched by the Spirit of God? Maybe it was at an altar of an old church. Maybe it was when you were a child in Sunday school. Maybe it was when you knelt down beside your bed or even sat at your desk and prayed a silent prayer. And somehow, God heard your prayer. Maybe it was uh, in an alley somewhere where you stumbled out of a club, drunk and alone, And in the darkness, you silently cried out for help. Maybe it was at a drug-infested party with the haze of hallucinogens hanging in the air. And you asked yourself, what am I doing here? In countless environments, in countless battles, God came through for you. You prayed and God heard you. You cried out and the Spirit of God came upon you. You didn't have much to work with. You were just a carcass. You were dead inside. You were scarred and marred. But victory came. Unmistakable, undeniable. Victory came. The cords were broke and the grip of sin loosened. You felt that weight lift. You felt that surge of strength. Your faith fortified. You felt that feeling of being invincible. And it wasn't because you or I deserved it. It was because God is a good God. I said, God is a good God. Yes, he heard the cry of David and Daniel and Joseph and other faithful men, but he also heard the cry of Samson, one who was prone to make mistakes. I'm so glad that God hears the prayers of faithful people, but I'm also glad that God hears the prayers of a man or a woman in a desperate situation that may not have a track record of making the right decisions, but God hears their prayers. Samson was prone to make not just mistakes, but the same mistakes over and over. Making the same mistakes over and over is described in Proverbs as a dog returning to his vomit. Perhaps nothing is more humiliating, nothing is more defeating than to make the same mistake over and over. But oh, my friend, I stand before you today to remind you of this simple fact that the same mistakes can also be a reminder 
of the same victories. The same God that brought you through before. Over and over again. To the point that you are here today against all odds. Perhaps even today as you sit in this building, your friends, those old friends, would never dream that you'd be sitting in a church today. But here you are. Because though you made repeated mistakes, uh, there were repeated victories. Uh, there were repeated times that you can point to that God said, not yet. Uh, I'm going to give you another chance. Uh, it's not over yet. I come today to declare to somebody under the sound of my voice. It's not over yet. It's not over until God says it's over. Jesus. Perhaps as Samson stumbled across the manicured lawns of the palace grounds, a shell of the man he used to be, he remembered when he was outnumbered and outmanned, trapped away from his fellow comrades, surrounded by 1,000 soldiers of the opposing army, the Philistine army, with only one mission, to capture or kill Samson. Somehow he was out there and didn't have his weapons with him. By himself, nobody else around. They caught him alone, unarmed. And a thousand trained soldiers surrounded him. Samson looks around and all he can find is an old, bleached jawbone of a dead donkey. This, my friend, is the jawbone of a donkey. Years ago, I remember preaching about this particular victory in Samson's life and I had an old bone, a femur bone of a kudu from Africa that I used as a prop. Somebody was watching online and felt so disturbed that I was referring to a jawbone of a donkey with a femur bone of a kudu that they sent me this in the mail. Whoever you were, if you're watching this morning, thank you so much. I knew one day I'd use this in a sermon. This is the jawbone of a donkey. I know it doesn't look like much now, but even as you feel this calcified bone, you, you can tell at one time this was part of a strong beast with blood pumping through it. It was part of something that was alive and powerful. But now it's just an old relic of something that represents strength in the past. It was just laying out there in the desert. That old donkey had died maybe of dehydration or starvation or maybe in some sort of a battle or natural causes. We don't know. But as the vultures came and picked off the flesh and meat of that animal, they couldn't do anything with this bone, so it just laid out there, bleached in the hot sun of the desert. It was just laying there when Samson was surrounded by all of these trained assassins that were there to take him out. And he reaches up, and the Bible says he takes that jawbone of a donkey in his hand, and with just... The jawbone of a donkey. He slays one 
thousand soldiers. That's what a fierce warrior he was. Not just with his own strength, but with the anointing of God upon him. I can almost use this jawbone as a bat. Hit a home run in the bottom of the ninth inning. Think about that. God can use anything to bring victory. Samson picked this thing up. And with only the jawbone of a donkey in his hand, he wins this mighty victory. The jawbone representing something that was once alive, but now it's dead, laying in the desert. But as Samson thinks back to these victories in his life, he can now relate to that jawbone. He's still around, but he's not nearly what he used to be. He's just an old, busted up, worn out, beat up, eyes plucked out, shell of the man that he used to be. He's not what he once was, but God still is. Oh, I feel like saying to somebody in this building today, you may not be what you used to be, but God is still God. He still has all power and all authority. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's still the only God and has the only name that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that He is God. He's God and He's God all by Himself. Mm. Samson can remember tossing that jawbone aside after the battle had been won. As soon as the battle was over and the threat was eliminated, it was tossed aside like a like an empty potato chip bag. Back to a life of leisure, back to business as usual. But then he remembered getting thirsty, dehydrated after a fierce battle and exhausted with no water in sight. Samson remembers this now as he slowly stumbles in the darkness to what would certainly be his death. Even though the threat of the enemy was gone, there was still a thirst. Even though he had won a mighty victory as he recollects back in his mind, there was still a thirst. He remembered crying out to God, what good does it do me for you to give me this great victory now for me to die out here of thirst? I guess it didn't dawn on him then, but maybe it dawns on him now that the very thing that had brought him victory is the very thing uh, that can bring him victory again. Uh, so many times we toss aside the victories that God has given us in the past. Uh, we need to hang on to every victory. You ought to call to remembrance every time God healed you in the ninth inning when the doctor said there's nothing we can do uh, and the cancer is all throughout your body. But yet God came through in the bottom of the ninth inning. Dawns on Samson now. The same God that spared you in a moment of desperation is the same God that can satisfy the longing of your soul. The Bible says the Lord carved out a hollow place in the jawbone. Sometimes it takes an emptiness, a, a hollow place in our lives for the waters to flow again. You've won the war. You've been successful in life. You've accomplished much. But now you need the water. In the Old Testament, Isaiah said, Therefore with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. What's the water, preacher? It's salvation. 
The waters were equated with salvation. In the New Testament, Jesus said, Out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water. And this spake He of the Spirit. The jawbone producing water was a sign that this carcass called humanity is going to give place to the infilling of the Spirit of God. It's described by the apostles as a treasure in earthen vessels. Yes, these bodies are frail. Yes, this human flesh is full of failures and faults. But there is a holy anointing from God that will be a well of living water. And although these bodies will one day give out, there is a hollow place. There is an artesian well that will spring forth for all of eternity. As this flesh is going to bubble up with new life. The Old Testament, the Lord said, for with stammering lips and another tongue will I speak to my people. In the New Testament, it says, when the day of Pentecost was fully come. They were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire. And it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Acts chapter 10 says, For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. You may have felt God before. You may have repented of your sins before. You may have even had God heal your body. But I've come to tell you, that this jawbone has water in it also. The same God that healed you, the same God that answered your prayer and spared your life is the same God that can fill you with the waters of salvation. This relic that many refer to as religion can produce a relationship between you and your Creator cause a human spirit to be able to be infused with a Holy Spirit. For Samson, the water did flow. It flowed out of that jawbone. And the Bible said his spirit came again and he revived. Samson remembers this victory. Now, in the torture of his present condition, he remembers that God did more than just give him a series of military victories. Cared enough about him to hear his prayer after the victory, after the enemy had been slain. He remembers that God cared about him, cared about desperation of his own soul. He remembers that, that God cared enough about him to satisfy the desires of his heart that would not benefit anybody else but him. But that's all God needed to answer his prayer. Samson would go on to make more mistakes. And now he's here in the ninth inning, stumbling up to the plate. He asked the little lad who's leading him, the bat boy as it were, if he could put his hands on the main pillars of the palace so as to lead him to a place that he could lean on the pillars. The boy leads him to that place. 3,000 drunken, crazed, screaming lunatics spitting on him and throwing their drinks on him. But somehow, even in this hostile environment, there is peace. A cone of silence for Samson. An eerie calm. 3,000. Those were just the ones that were on the roof. That was just the overflow. That temple, a temple that was dedicated to a false god called Dagon. A god that had been made up in man's own mind and imagination. A god that was half fish and half man, sort of a male mermaid. They had built this palace to honor Dagon. And that was a stench in the nostrils of God. 
Here all of these thousands of people gather. They've all come under the same roof for the same time in the same moment. And they're screaming their jeers, making fun of Samson as he stumbles along. But there he stands in the frailty of his flesh, the object of unbridled scorn. He puts the pieces together and he gets the revelation. God can bring victory out of death. Praise a simple prayer. Lord, just one more time. I know I don't deserve it. But if you just hear my prayer one more time, if you just give me strength one more time, oh, my friend, it just takes one more time. You say, oh, preacher, you don't know how many mistakes I've made in life. All it takes is just getting back up one more time. All it takes is just one more prayer. God will respond. Oh, Samson says just once more, Just one more time, God. Sometimes we get to the end of the rope and the enemy of your soul stands over you jeering from the fact that you have had numerous mistakes in your life. And you're nothing but a shell of your former person. He forgets God that brought you numerous victories still has an ear that's inclined to your prayers. It's not over. I said it's not over. The miscalculation of the enemy is that God can bring new life when we die out to our flesh. Just one more time, Lord, heal my body. Just one more time, God, forgive me. With 3,000 people in the building, at least, the lords of the Philistines gathered together That building collapses as Samson dislodged those support columns. The Bible says Samson accomplished more in his death than he did in his life as the entire military and political leadership of Israel's arch nemesis die in one night because God is the God of the ninth inning. Would you stand to your feet this morning? Abraham's told to take his son, his only son, the miracle son, take him up to the top of Mount Moriah for a sacrifice. Abraham keeps waiting for what will surely be a miracle. He even tells the helpers that help to prepare their supplies for the journey. You guys going back to the camp, the lad and I will return. He must have known God was going to bring the victory. With every twist and turn of that dusty trail as they made their way up the mountain, he must have been thinking in his mind, probably just around the next corner, an angel from heaven will appear and say, Abraham, you've passed the test now. You can go back to camp. But with each turn, twist of the trail, winding his way up to the top of Mount Moriah, There was no angel to stop. Maybe when I get to the top, maybe then the Lord will stop. No, he just kept going through the first inning, the second inning, the third inning, the fifth, the sixth, the seventh, the eighth. Now he's at the point where he's got to tell Isaac, a grown son, 
I got to tie your hands and put you up on this makeshift altar and I got to sacrifice you unto the Lord. Isaac was a grown man. I don't believe Abraham could have done it without Isaac's permission. Isaac was obedient too. Isaac allows his dad to tie his hands and put him up on that altar. I'm sure Abraham was pretty deliberate with the process. Kept waiting for the answer. When's it going to come? We're in the ninth inning now. We're in the bottom of the ninth. One out, two outs. Come on, Lord, it's time. Finally, Abraham has to commit. Takes the dagger out of his robe. Holds it up over his head. And as he prepares to come down and take the life of his son, the bottom of the ninth, his arm is stopped. Abraham. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. And he turns and there's the ram caught in the thicket. That ram is out of his natural habitat. How did he get up here? Because God works on both sides of the mountain. While you're going up one side, God has the answer coming up the other side. It's invisible. You don't see it. That's why you got to just keep on... It'd be a lot less stressful if the Lord would bring the victory in the fifth inning, but it seems like He waits till the bottom of the ninth when we're out of options. It's only then Abraham would have aborted that journey at any process along the way. He would have failed the test. But he believed, the Bible said, that even if he took the life of his son, that God could raise him up. Oh, my friend, I'm going to tell you something. The enemy can never defeat you. If nothing can steal your confidence in God. Oh, my friend, you may think it's too much time, too much water under the bridge. Oh, no, my friend, it's not too late for you. I know it's the bottom of the ninth, but God has been waiting for this moment to rescue you, to save you. You may feel like you're out of options, but I've got good news. You've come to the right place at the right time. I'd like to introduce you to the God of the ninth inning. You can come down to this altar and you can meet Him. He'll give you His autograph because the Bible says that He will sign your heart with the imprint of His Spirit. And you'll know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God's still loves you and God cares for you all over this building would you lift up your hands now and would you lift up your voice and would you talk to your friend your God your Savior would you call out to him just one more time just once more he will hear your prayer he will hear your cry he will make a way when there seems to be no way Oh, come on, my friend, from wherever you are today. Come on, step out and make your way down to the altar. Come on, complete the journey today. Complete the journey. Come all the way to the place, to the point where God can reveal to you He's been working the whole time He's been there.
there's power.